Welcome to Women Worth Knowing, the radio program and podcast hosted by Cheryl Broderson and Robin Jones-Gunn. There are so many Christian women with fascinating stories, whether missionaries, musicians, reformers, authors, or wives and mothers, their examples are inspirational to us all. Isn't that so true, Robin? So true. And I'm Cheryl Broderson. I'm in studio with my friend Robin Jones-Gunn, and Every week we love to bring you as uh, a new woman, a new woman um, that we've discovered in history that walked with the Lord and was yes. able to carry out extraordinary things. Yes. But we have now our second our second episode that we're doing with Dr. John Dixon. I'm so sorry. That we had last <laughs> week, which was so fascinating because you are a historian. You've told us about women we didn't know about before, these early church women. Um, and so if you didn't hear that podcast, you need to yes, go, go back. back and listen to it to just prepare for this week's. But um, John is a uh, author of over 20 books. He's a speaker. He's a historian. He has also co-hosted the documentary, For the Love of God, How the Church is Better and Worse Than You Ever Imagined. Um, he taught a course uh, on the historical Jesus at the University of Sydney, Australia. Actually, um, you wrote a book, too, about the historical Jesus. Mm. That was one of the books, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've written a couple about Jesus. Okay. my favorite topic. Well, I would hope so. (laughs) But right now, and you also uh, have taught at Oxford, and you still teach at Oxford University. Well, I have a a research position called Visiting Academic in the Classics Faculty. Mm -hmm. Well, that's where I met you in Oxford. So I have to bring that up. And right now you're in Wheaton, Illinois. But you came out to California and you promised me that if you ever came out that you would be on this podcast Mm -hmm. because we started talking about women. And uh, I was curious about the women in church history and then you introduced me to some that I didn't know. But you know of a lot of women um, going through church history. So I want you to tell me some of the ones that have most impressed you. Uh, well, I love stories. We love stories yes, on here. Yes, we do. I, I mentioned some of my favorites la- last week. I mean, Nuni stands mm-hmm. out. Oh, you know, yes. Who single-handedly converted a nation. That is um, amazing. And then just left and went off to other nations preaching, and we don't hear from her again. You know, so she obviously, you know, just someone didn't record what she did next, but I'm sure she did lots of stuff next. So she is she's perhaps my favorite of the sort of unknown mm, characters of, right. of the early church. Um, but uh, you, you could mention uh, Marcia. I mean, we only have two or three lines that mention her. And um, she was actually the concubine of Commodus, Emperor Commodus, the, the son of Marcus Aurelius. Oh, my goodness. At the end of the second century. Mm-hmm. Um, and you might think, oh, can a Christian be a concubine? Well, I mean, she didn't really have much choice in it, right? Mm-hmm. The imperial concubine, it's like, sorry, this is your your role. But apparently, I mean, the, this, the non-Christian source we have that references her indicates that she was extremely pro-Christian and was working behind the scenes in the imperial household to protect Christians. Wow. In a period that was very difficult for Christians. Mm. Could have been much worse, mm-hmm. but for this concubine. My goodness. Who slept mm-hmm. with the emperor. Mm-hmm. Once again... The women in the underground. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and having that outreach and influence. Yeah. And for of... it to eventually to be known by yes. a secular Roman writer from the period, she looked after the Christians. 
which is not a good thing. It sounds like a good thing to us, but in the Roman source, it's a bad thing. Mm-hmm. She worked behind the scenes. Well, it's interesting because, you know, when I was uh, studying, um, we did one on Anne Boleyn, mm-hmm. who also had kind of a not super moral relationship with, you know, Henry VIII. But you also had his last wife, Catherine Parr, who was a wonderful Christian. Both of them worked to um, protect uh, the the believers in yeah. England. So it's the same mm-hmm. same type of thing. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, in your book, Bullies and Saints, you talked about, you know, Christians sometimes get violent when they should get loving. Yeah. You know, when they should say, wow, the Lord is using this person in our lives. Um, instead, they're like, well, they're immoral. And they discount them. But here is a woman obviously stuck in this immoral lifestyle that God used. That's amazing. Yes. And if I were to sort of list another one that I I find myself deeply impressed by, it's a woman called Macrina. And um, so it's the mid to late 300s AD. And she was the big sister of the two greatest theologians of the fourth century. They call them the Cappadocian Fathers. And anyone who goes to seminary learns about the Cappadocian Fathers because they were massively intellectual. And they are basically the ones who found language to describe the Trinity. Wow. Mm -hmm. To find philosophically Mm -hmm. robust language to describe how the one God can be Father, Son, and Spirit in a mutual love relationship. Now, um, Basil the Great is one of her brothers, and, and he, he is also famous for not just being a theologian, but he started the world's first hospital. Mm, really? First public hospital. He actually employed nurses and doctors, used the best of pagan medicine, but Christian compassion. Oh. And this notion of a hospital took off like wildfire. And within a century, there were hundreds of hospitals based on Basil's model. Um, and they were all run by the church. And the whole idea of a public hospital came from early Christianity. So that's Basil. Uh, Gregory of Nyssa, the brother of Basil, brother of Macrina, and I will get to Macrina in a second, um, was was regarded as the greatest theologian of, of the ancient church. And uh, when you read his writings, you're just in awe of, of this man. He, he also happens to have preached the very first full-blown abolitionist sermon we have in world history. Amazing. Which you can yes. still read to this day. Mm. He wow. and, and it isn't just be nice to your slaves. It is basically you're going to hell if you own a slave. Wow. How dare you take the image of God mm. and treat it as something you own. It's mm. a blistering. No one in his diocese, and he's a bishop, right? Bishop. No one in his diocese could have owned a slave and got away with it. Mm. Unfortunately, the church didn't follow that. Mm-mm. You know, they followed Mm-mm. sort of a more Western policy that allowed slaves and to our shame. But that's Gregory of Nyssa. Okay. Gregory reckons, and he, he wrote a book about his sister. Gregory reckons they owe everything to their big sister who taught them to read and write, mm. who sent them off to school, who told them to use their intellectual gifts for Jesus. Mm. But as Gregory writes the story of Macrina's life after she's she's died, he calls her his Plato. Mm. That is, I learnt from my sister what it is to think. Mm. Oh. And 
he tells us also about what Macrina did. So she, this is a high-born family who used their elite status for the benefit of others. Wow. And, and he wrote a book about Macrina. Yeah. Is that still... Yeah. Really? My, my big sister, Macrina. <laughs> Absolutely. It's, yeah, you can read a book about Macrina now, that he wrote. Could that possibly be the first book that was written about a woman and her influence? I can think of an earlier love story, a pagan love story about a woman. <laughs> no, but I mean a real woman. A real woman's had... book. It, it might well be. I'd hate to sort of go on the record of saying yes, it is, but, um, but it could well be. Um, and, it's, and it's gorgeous, um, describing her not only as an intellectual who taught him to think and taught him the Lord, and he said was the living, breathing example of a Christian for him mm. and for his brother, Basil. But he says that um, she, she suffered in life. I think it's right that she lost her fiancé mm. and decided then not to marry and established a farm with a bunch of other godly women, and they worked the farm. The women worked the farm, and prayed and studied the scriptures and collected abandoned infants. You know, what's so remarkable is when we look back on the women that we've looked mm-hmm. at in the past, these are some common traits, losing a fiancé, losing a husband early, mm. being determined to move forward and creating a community mm. and then bringing in orphans and widows mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and how God blessed that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> People should know, I don't know if everyone does know, that um, the, the Christians were collecting abandoned infants on, on an industrial scale mm. in this period because Greeks and Romans thought nothing of the morality or immorality of abandoning a child you didn't want. Uh, often just girls because people didn't think girls were as productive and therefore as valuable. So Greeks and Romans, you know, if, they, if, if the child is born and it's a, it's a girl, they would leave it on the local rubbish dump or by the market. It'll either be picked up by another family who wants a child, unfortunately be picked up by traffickers as well, mm. or left to the elements. Mm. But Christians and Jews preached against this practice of infanticide, mm. or what was strictly speaking called expositio, to expose your child to the elements. Um, but Christians went further than just preaching against it, like the Jews also did. They, they actually went out of the way and collected babies and raised them as their own. And Macrina and her, um, I don't want to call it a, a nunnery because that just sort of conjures up images. They're just a, a community of godly women, farmers, <laughs> who are also raising children, boys and girls. And um, I said at an event last night, it, I can't get the thought out of my head that, that there are probably millions of people alive today because they are descendants of the infants collected by Christians like Macrina. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. Yeah, it really is. And, of course, with the abolition that Gregory was the first to really be vocal about, I mean, puts in mind the um, Beecher family. So Henry Ward Beecher, who's a great preacher in America and is preaching against slavery, and then his sister, um, Harriet Beecher Stowe, writes Uncle Tom's Cabin that Mm -hmm. as a novel it gets in there and it changes the minds of the nation. So that brother-sister influence way back. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's powerful, isn't it? Yeah. And to understand to the Imago Deo, mm. these, every person is created mm-hmm. in the image of God and therefore you know, deserves 
dignity, mm-hmm. dignity. And, you know, even the babies have dignity and have value and worth. Mm. So I think I love Macrina. I'd never heard of her. Yeah. I mean, she must have been some woman. Mm-hmm. But everyone can just go and get Life of Macrina. It'll probably be online well, I somewhere, I assume. <laughs> yes. But Gregory yeah. of Nyssa's um, Life of Macrina. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So any other women that you could think oh, of? Oh, man, we could just go on. <laughs> oh, I love it. We could zip through the centuries. Um, Hildegard of Bingen. Oh, right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, born of an elite family in West Germany uh, in the 1100s and um, ends up becoming the abbess of uh, Benedictine um, monastery for, for women. Um, but she was the smartest kid on the planet. And her her enormous writings that have been left behind um, indicate that she was just operating at a level that even elite men weren't operating at. She she wrote medical treatises. She wrote theological treatises. She wrote philosophical treatises. It's amazing. And she wrote sort of mystical, you know, uh, Christian practices uh, documents. Um, she went on preaching tours. You know, I know for some that that's like, a, you know, they're not meant to do that, are they? But you know, hey, here they we did are. It. <laughs> the, but yeah, I'm just saying in the 12th century, mm-hmm. people were so uh, overawed by Hildegard's uh, wisdom that she was allowed to preach not just to, um, you know, women. women and girls, uh, women and men in church, but to priests. Priests would come to her wow. to hear her preaching. Wow. We have documented uh, a preaching tour that she did Wow! in the 1100s where they would come and learn from her. So she's a, she's a good example. Can I give you a crazy example? I thought a crazy one. Oh, was oh. Hildegard the one who said, I am but a quill in the hand of God? It's not a quote I precisely remember, yes, but that's what came to mind when you said um, her name. It, it sounds just, like the sort of thing that she'd say. Yeah, just such a sense. I'm available, Lord. Mm. How do you want to use me? And mm. then how, the, with all the writings that you're saying, mm. that would we'll have to look that one up. Yes. Now I want to know the zany. Okay. I mean, this is so zany. I I don't know if I like this or not, but um, I sort of do. I find myself wondering about this woman called Christina who's uh, uh, born in the uh, late 1100s, early 1200s. She's doing her ministry. She has some kind of religious experience that was probably a near-death experience. She, she, she was in, a, in an accident and had a near-death experience where she um, encountered what she thought was hell, mm. was, was granted a glimpse of hell. And she came out of this experience um, both having had a what seems like a breakdown, um, so I think she had probably had mental health issues, um, but absolutely uh, feeling everyone's pain. Mm. And so she would wander the streets of Europe weeping in the villages over the sins, her own sins and of the sins of others, and pleading with people to avoid um, the judgment of God. And some people beat her up. Oh, uh, wow. Some people um, uh, set their dogs on her to attack her. And so she sometimes was very badly injured. So she was physically extremely frail. Mm. But she would just, you know, survive <laughs> and go through the villages 
weeping, basically. She had a ministry of weeping over the sins of Europe. Wow. And it had a massive effect. People thought she was like a walking oracle. Mm. They didn't know what to do with her. Mm -hmm. But she would go to church and she would take communion and she was like a devout Christian. And just when I think I love her, you know, I I don't care what mental health issues she had. She was, she poured it all into, you know, bringing the gospel to people. But then she was a huge advocate for the crusade. (laughs) I remember that from the book, Bullies and Saints. Yes. She preached. In fact, when Saladin uh, took Jerusalem, Mm Mm-hmm. She uh, was said to have gone around Europe saying, I praise the Lord that Saladin has taken Jerusalem because it means there will be a new opportunity for you to join the crusade and go take Jerusalem back. Wow. And she, she actually became quite a significant recruiter mm. for the crusade. Amazing. Uh, Fourth crusade um, and, and, and on. Um, and at that point, I think, oh, I don't know if I love her or not. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is a good example of how um, this was mixed. Mm-hmm. The history is mixed. And it wasn't just the men calling for the Crusades. Mm-hmm. There was this highly spiritual, spooky woman, Christina, who also advocated the Crusades. And they called her Christina the Astonishing. That's actually what they ended up <laughs> really? calling her. Uh, as she wandered around Europe, because people, they, she astonished people. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting that her reputation be, you know, astonishing or, you know, this. You get all these mystics, though, during that time. And I think, again, there's this absence of the word of God, maybe because they're illiterate or, and I'm wondering if that's part of what led to all this mysticism. You know, even, you know, we talked on another program about Catherine of Siena, yeah. who, you know, they're so mystical, or um, Madame Guillaume, Madame Guillaume yeah. and you're not quite sure if you, mm, you know, how you feel. And yet they did have a sincere relationship with the Lord, and yet they they never they never tended to grow beyond um, the mysticism into the like Hildegard. They never became a Hildegard where they yeah. were growing Hildegard in the knowledge. Hildegard does stand out yes. as, a tr- as a truly literate. Mm-hmm. She's basically a professor. Right. And, and even Macrina. That yeah. I, I would yeah. say those were the differences between yeah. what we see with the mystics is here are these women who know the word of God mm. and are able to communicate, teach the word of God mm. to, to other women, to, to, you know, others, her brothers, mm. which is... But I, I was reading a couple of... Um, Catherine of Siena's letters right. um, just the other day, just last week in pre- preparation for something. Um, and I I was so impressed with her. Yes. Because she's always going on about the death of Jesus and, and the way he's shown his love to us mm. and that that's a love that demands everything back from us. Mm-hmm. Um, so she was, she was grounded. She wasn't simply a mystic. She was grounded in the central truth of the gospel, that God has given himself for us in Jesus Christ and that that is the basis for our giving ourselves to others and and back to God. Mm-hmm. And in the case of Catherine, she was so bold, she would write to the um, Pope. I happen to be yes. reading one of her letters yes. to the Pope. And and she, she basically says to him, stop being a little boy. Will you be a grown man for Jesus, please? And then at the end she says, well, I hope you will also forgive me for my boldness. <laughs> Which... 
He didn't. But <laughs> but he did do what she said. That's true. And that mm-hmm. is move um, the the papal house from Avignon in this, in France back to Rome, oh. which is what she wanted. Mm-hmm. Which yeah, I found her fascinating too. But again, you know, um, you take someone like Madame Guillaume, uh, who who put rocks in her shoes because she thought that pleased God yeah. to, to walk painfully. And you're thinking, yeah. okay, they have these ideas. I, even Catherine Sienna, that somehow suffering made them, um, what do I want to say, more acceptable to God, mm-hmm. which is, you know, kind of a notion you don't get in scriptures. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, if you can avoid suffering, you know, if you can buy yourself out of slavery, do it. Mm. You know, don't bring unnecessary suffering mm. into your life where sometimes they would bring unnecessary suffering. Life's got enough suffering. But anyone else? One more? Uh, Perpetua. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, now, how did you say that? Perpetua. Okay, because I've heard Perpetua. I've, see, I've heard all sorts of Perpetua. Yeah, Perpetua is how you would say it in Latin. Perfect. Um, and Because that was the language she spoke, that would probably be a bit. Yeah. So she's in Carthage, North Africa. It's the year 203. Um, she has a newborn child at the breast. Mm-hmm. Oh, my goodness. And she and a bunch of um, catechumens, that is students studying to become full Christians, mm-hmm. like people doing the Alpha course, you know, mm-hmm. they get arrested <laughs> and imprisoned. And she at first goes to prison with the newborn. And she actually writes a diary. And we are pretty confident historically that the diary is a genuine reflection that's been inserted into the larger account of her imprisonment and, and eventual execution. Wow. So it tops and tails with some other author, quite recent after the event. So it's historically very likely. Um, but but then there's this section that says, where the editor basically says, and, and here is her diary from prison. And it, it genuinely reads like uh, the eyewitness account of Perpetua, mm. and um, she—it's heartbreaking. Um, she, she talks um, about how eventually her dad pleaded because she's in prison for a couple of months. Her dad pleads her to give the infant back. She she does, and then she actually talks about getting mastitis, mm. what we call mastitis, mm-hmm. and how you know painful it was. But then she says, and and, and then the Lord suddenly took away that pain, mm. and I was filled with confidence that He was with me. And then you know it breaks off, and then. The editor who post her death records that she was stomped on by a bull until she was nearing death, and then the Roman guard slit her throat mm. in public. But her devotion to Jesus, her cheerful confidence and cheerful humility in the one, this is what I find so compelling about her and, and someone like Nuni and some of the other women. They are able to combine confidence with humility not a confidence that is the bully, but a confidence that is so confident in Jesus. You know, they can be slapped around the head or, in her case, sent mm. to a wild beast and still love their enemies and, above all, love Jesus. That's what I get from someone like Perpetua. You know, that's interesting because that would have been my last question mm. is what can we today learn from these women Unbelievable confidence mm-hmm. in Christ. I love that. Even out of their brokenness, because mm-hmm. some of these women were, you know, weak and injured and low class oh, yeah. and so on. But their confidence was not in themselves; it was it was in Jesus Christ. And so they were victors by mm-hmm. definition. 
And that sense of being a victor didn't produce in them the kind of arrogance of the jerk, you know, which is so often associated with, you know, some Christian leaders. Um, but, but their confidence led to this sweet, cheerful service and humility. I love that. And it's the combo I would, you know, as a bloke, I would love. Mm-hmm. And as a woman, I would love it too. And I, th- I think again about when we talked in the earlier uh, podcast about a Keptis who was known as a lover of God. And I want to be known as a lover of God, but I want it to be seen through the love and the kindness and the humility too. And I think that is something that we've seen through the women that we've seen be most effective through history for the gospel, for the good of others, have all had that humility and kindness too. And a tenacity, which is beautiful. Yes, a tenacity too. Yeah. For the Savior. Mm-hmm. That's so. our encouragement today. Wow. It Thank you, John, really is so much. much. Thank you again, John, for joining us. This is going to be a program we'll remember forever because you were the first man that we had Thank on. Thank you for listening to Women Worth Knowing with Cheryl Broderson and Robin Jones-Gunn. For more information on Cheryl, visit CherylBroderson.com or follow her on Instagram or Facebook. For more information on Robin, visit RobinGunn.com or follow her on Instagram or Facebook. Join us each week for a lively conversation as we explore the lives of well-known and not-so-well-known historical and contemporary Christian women. If you think there is a woman worth knowing, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at wwk at cccm.com. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode. Make sure you rate us on your podcast app, subscribe, and share it with a friend. Thank you again for listening to Women Worth Knowing with Cheryl Broderson and Robin Jones-Gunn. Women Worth Knowing is a production of Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa.